When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So a few weeks ago, I was uh, thumbing through the channels and a movie popped up uh, that, is directed by, that was directed by Christopher Nolan. And Christopher Nolan is one of my favorite directors and uh, uh, storytellers. He has, uh, you know, he's the creative genius behind the, the Batman trilogy that kind of set the standard that the new one probably will not meet up to that's coming out next week, right? Uh, he's he's that, that really good World War II movie, Dunkirk. How many of you saw Dunkirk, right? That's a great, Excellent, excellent World War II. Uh, he did that one. And, you know, things like Tenet and Inception and The Prestige, that's a little older one. But the one that but popped up on the screen was one, his, the first one I ever saw by him back in, uh, I think it was 2001, 2002. It's called Memento. Now, I remember back at the time when I saw that movie in 2001, uh, after it was done, I just sat there. I was just, you know, good old word. I was gobsmacked, right? And I sat there, I was just thinking, this may be the most creative, mind-blowing movie I've ever seen in my life. I was just stunned. Because that movie, kind of like the way he did with Dunkirk, um, it starts, the opening scene begins, and you don't quite know what it's about. And then the rest of the movie unfolds, and he brings in all of these storylines, and as each scene unfolds, ultimately, what you realize at the end of the movie was that the opening scene was the ending scene of the movie. And what didn't make sense at the, end, at the beginning of the movie now makes perfect sense, and it all comes together. All these storylines, he did it in Dunkirk, he did it in Memento, and in our scripture reading this morning, because our passage of scripture is 73 verses long. Longer than what I gave to Randy Pope, I might add, just so we would think. Um, I decided to pull a, a chapter and borrow a technique from Christopher Nolan this morning and his technique. And we read the ending first, right? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The church in Jerusalem is stunned to silence and then we see this unexpected revelation, right? That occurs, the Gentiles are now being included in the church and in the kingdom of God. And so if this Scene. This is the unexpected revelation. This is the final act in the movie, so to speak. Then the previous 72 verses, right? That's the other acts in the story in the movie. And the importance of these acts are, is kind of obvious. Um, the reason why they're obvious, it's so obvious, is because they're repeated twice. They're repeated, first they're presented to us in chapter 10 by Luke. The historian, he gives us kind of that historian uh, telling of the events. And, and it's very detailed, but it comes from that high level kind of, you know, sterile, here's what happened and just the facts, Joe Friday type of approach. And, but then they're repeated in chapter 11 by Peter and he gives it from a personal testimony, here's what I experienced approach. But as far as we're concerned, what I want you to understand is that in the Bible, when God repeats himself, that is really, really important. That's like God shouting, oh, pay attention. This is really important what I'm saying here. When he repeats himself, we, we have to pay attention and stand up and try to get what he's saying. 
So in this large, repeated narrative, we're going to kind of, kind of do like a, a Nolan-esque script, right? There's five acts, and the entire script, we're titling it Unexpected Transitions. And the very first act is some unexpected visions. Beginning in chapter 10, verse 1 to 7, we are introduced to a man by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile. He is a Roman centurion, which means that he is the equivalent of like a captain in our army. Um, He's in charge of 100 to 200 soldiers. He's a powerful man. He has the power of life and death over over Jewish people. He's described as a God-fearing man, which means that he's in all likelihood rejected the polytheistic religion of the Roman Empire. He's been influenced by the monotheistic beliefs of the Jewish people. He is searching for truth. He's searching for answers. The Jewish people describe him as a good man. He gives alms to the poor. He apparently does not abuse his power and his office and beat people. One day, he is given a vision by God. An angel appears to him, gives him very specific instructions and tells him, send servants to Joppa, 32, 35 miles away from Caesarea where Cornelius lived. Go to Simon the Tanner's house and there you will find a man by the name of Simon Peter. Bring him to you. He has a message from God for you. When the vision ends, being a good soldier, Cornelius obeys. He sends three of his messengers, and they begin the day-and-a-half-long trip to Simon the Tanner's house to ask Peter to come. The next vision picks up in verse 8. This is Peter's vision. Now it's the next day. It's midday. It's lunchtime. Peter is on top of Simon's house. Flat, this is a common thing in the Mediterranean world. You know, they didn't have air conditioning. You go up on top of the house to get the breezes. And and that house was near the ocean. Joppa was a a seafaring town. And and so he's getting the breeze and he's up there and he's praying and it's noontime and he gets hungry. And so he orders from Grubhub. And while he's waiting for his lunch and he continues to pray, he gets a vision from God. And what a vision it is, right? He sees coming down from heaven a massive sheet with four corners, and this sheet covers the entire planet. And it's like he's stepping back, and he's able to see this happening. And then as he, he steps forward, he has this horrific picture before him. On this sheet covering the earth is every imaginable kind of animal you can see. Now remember, he's a Jew, a devout Jew. He's a kosher man. And on this sheet, There are certainly kosher animals, but there are pigs, and there are lobsters, and there are shrimp, and there are oysters, and there are all these other things that are going to make you hungry, right? And all the things that he would never, there's reptiles and birds and chickens and and all this stuff that he would never eat in a thousand years. As uh, Dr. Kent Hughes described it, when he looked at this, in his estimation, what Peter saw was an unholy smorgasbord which tells you Dr. Hughes was a pastor in the Chicago area, right? Because nobody uses the word smorgasbord except people from that area of the world. If he was pastoring down here or in Jacksonville, he would have said what Peter saw was an unholy all-you-can-eat buffet, okay? That's what he saw, right, in this view. And in, chapter, in verse 13 of chapter 10, this is what we read. And there came a, a voice to Peter, 
Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. In other words, absolutely not, God. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This vision and this message and interaction between Peter and God occurs a total of three times. And as this occurs and as it ends, Peter's on the rooftop and he's gobsmacked. He's wondering, what is going on? I don't understand what I'm seeing here. And as he's pondering this vision, our second act occurs, an unexpected request. The messengers from Cornelius arrive. They knock at the front gate. And as Simon Peter goes and he meets these men, they tell him this story of their master, this Gentile centurion Cornelius with the vision and the request that has been given. And as they're speaking, the Holy Spirit turns the light on inside of the mind and the heart of Peter. And he realizes, oh, maybe this vision isn't about Shrimp and lobster and baby back ribs after all. Maybe that's not the point. You see, Church Peter was a devout Jewish man and he had been shaped by centuries of national and ethnic and spiritual pride that had set in with the nation and with the people. And so he was not ready for any kind of an unexpected transition. He wasn't ready. Now, he had been, prepared, been getting prepared. In fact, if you go back to the end of chapter 9, God had begun to prepare him for this. It's through Peter, he had resurrected from the dead a woman by the name of Tabitha, showing Peter that God can do anything. His power is so great, he can do anything, even bringing the dead back to life. And then he puts him in the home of Simon the Tanner, which meant Simon Peter is now ritualistically, ceremonially in a constant state of uncleanness. He could not go to the temple because a tanner was a dirty, nasty, smelly occupation. You're dealing with dead animals. And so you're, you're ritually, spiritually unclean. And so the irony here is this very proud, upright, meticulous Jew was living in a home where he was by de facto unclean, now interacting with Gentiles who are what? Unclean. So he's been getting prepared by God, but he's not ready for this. He's been, he's been indoctrinated with the idea that the Jews were God's chosen people. I mean, that's what the scriptures say. And, and how is this applied? This means that you eat differently, you dress differently, you worship differently, and you certainly do not befriend and associate with Gentiles. You just don't do it. And so what it, the result of this, as John Stott comments, is that the tragedy was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism. And they became filled with racial pride and hatred. They despised Gentiles as dogs and developed traditions which kept them apart. So it took time. And it was time for the Holy Spirit to root out this prejudice and this bigotry and racism and elitism and Peter. And this vision that appears three times was the means for this to be accomplished. 
The vision meant this, the four corners, north, south, east, and west, covering the earth means the entire planet and all of the different animals and species, right? Clearly was not referring just to the animals of the world. And, and then when God says to them, to him, what God has called clean, do not call common and unclean, right? He's not talking about just animals. He's talking about all the people groups and all the individuals of the world. They look differently. They come from different tribes and speak different languages and have different skin colors and different religions. But to God, they all have a certain amount of dignity because every human being is created in the image of God. And since every human being is created in his image and has his dignity, every human being has the, the, the right to hear the gospel from us. Shouldn't be withheld from anyone. And ultimately, the kingdom of God is going to be made up of every nation, tribe, and people. And these divisions that were approved by the Jewish people at this time are, are eradicated. And Peter gets it finally. As he's talking to these men, he, the light bulb goes off. Wow, it's not animals. It wasn't about dietary laws. God wasn't telling me it's okay now to eat these things. That, that wasn't the most important thing, even though maybe he did enjoy some baby bath. I don't know, but that wasn't the primary point. The most important thing was the people that those animals represented, the deeper truth. And how you know that this is the interpretation of the vision is Peter's own words. Later in the chapter, when he is meeting with these, this Gentile Cornelius and to the people in his house, he will say to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. He's using the language from that vision. That's the point of the vision right there. He gets it. So we have this unexpected vision and the unexpected request. Now, act three, the unexpected results. Peter arrives, takes them a day and a half. They get to Cornelius's house. Outside the house is Cornelius and his family. And when Peter walks up, here is this man, a powerful man, runs up to Peter and he falls at his feet and he hugs him and he begins to worship Peter. And Peter says, whoa, 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 no, no, you don't worship me. I'm just a man like you are. And he helps him get up to his feet and he rushes him off. And, and so Cornelius, you know, gets him and his family and he brings him into the house. And when he walks into the house to the surprise of Peter and the other six Jewish men who are with him, right, the house is filled with other people. So, so Cornelius, knowing that Peter was coming, he gathers together this crowd and the, the, the house is packed and there's these people waiting on Peter. And so Peter, kind of, you can tell Peter's kind of uncomfortable. You know, he, he, he just kind of starts with like, okay, I'm here. What do you want? <laughs> so he starts kind of like, you know, what, what, what do you want from me? And Cornelius begins to tell his story and, and the angel and what the angel says to him. And he finishes the story with this statement. And, and no preacher could ever ask for a better question from anyone. Cornelius says, what message from God do you have for us? I mean, you talk about teeing it up for Peter, right? And Peter begins with that verse I read to you a few moments ago. And he says, guys, you know, I'm a Jew. I'm not even supposed to be here. But God showed me 
that it is wrong for me to have favorites and to, to discriminate against Gentiles. And so you wanna know the message from God that I have for you? I have good news from God for you today. The news I have, the good news from God that I have is that you can have peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of every single person, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. And then he begins to preach. The first sermon to the Gentiles that's in record recorded. And in that sermon, it's a great sermon. I wish we had time to park there and to, to go through it and glean everything. We, we don't, but I do wanna make a, a, some quick applications from it. He goes through that sermon and he begins and, and he says, listen, uh, you guys know who Jesus is. Everybody knows who Jesus is. Uh, you've, you've, you're aware of what he did up in Galilee and Jerusalem and Judea and all the miracles. And, and those miracles were God's way of proving that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he's God in the flesh. And, and even though he did all of those miracles, our religious leaders, as you know, because you know, you get the newspapers like everybody else does. You know what they did to Jesus. They hung him on a tree, this innocent person, was crucified. He was crucified to pay for our sins and he died. But he's God, God in the flesh, and he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead after three days. And I'm here to tell you that this happened, that we touched him, we ate with him, we interacted with him, we are witnesses to this fact that he is uh, God in the flesh, that he has been named judge of everyone who ever will live. And then he gives them that wonderful opportunity and that wonderful invitation to trust in Christ. Great, great sermon. Wonderful application in it and in what happened there. The first thing I think that we, we should point out, I was struck by just the entire environment, the scene that was there, the, the crowd that is waiting on Peter. Uh, what a reminder for us, church. Let's never forget that our God is so powerful that through common grace and other means, he will use lost people and the things that are in the world to gather together lost people <laughs> so that the gospel can be spread and can be heard by those who need to hear it. We need to be reminded of that. Um, even today, we, we, man, as we look at what's happening, I look over at what's happening in Ukraine right now. We have ministry partners over there. And, you know, they're, they're staying and they're trying to do ministry and they're scared. And, and we see the evil of, of what Vladimir Putin is doing. And we see, you know, we see what the bravery of the Ukrainian people. And I saw this image even just uh, last night of all of these uh, Ukrainian Christians down in the subways, bomb shelters, a massive crowd of them. And as people are streaming, uh, these Christians are standing there and they're singing songs like we were singing this morning to the crowd to comfort them <laughs> in the middle of the shelling, you know? And then in all the chaos of this world, it's, it's good for us to remember that in everything that is occurring, God is working. And he works through the events and the chaos of this world and in behind the scenes in ways that we don't even know. He will even use his evil men like a Vladimir Putin. And at the end of the day, he does it in order to further the kingdom and the gospel so that even evil deeds do not overcome God's kingdom plan. 
He uses lost people even to gather lost people so that they can hear the gospel. It's good for us just to be reminded of that this morning as we look at the world around us. It's good for us to be reminded that the good news of Jesus Christ, it is not a fable. It is not a myth. It is not a legend. It is verifiable truth that is grounded in historical reality. Peter's sermon was pointing them to facts that they knew, that they were aware of, because they were first-generation observers, aware of what had taken place. Christianity, unlike other religions, was not something that's made up hundreds of years ago. Those of you who are searching for answers, the book of Acts, Luke the historian, is bringing this to us, to a, someone who wanted to understand the story of Christianity, and he's interviewing firsthand witnesses and the tradition of the historians of that day using the scholarship and the standards that were required. This isn't myth and legend. This is truth grounded in historic reality. And the people don't deny what Peter says at all about Jesus. They, yeah, you're right. Everybody knew that what Jesus did. Even the Pharisees, they never denied that Jesus did all of these miraculous, wonderful things. They just said, you're doing it through the power of Satan, not through the power of God. But they didn't deny what happened. And most important application from this is that the same promise that was offered to Cornelius almost 2,000 years ago is the promise that's offered to anyone here this morning. To him and all the prophets, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. If like Cornelius, you want peace with God, that peace with God comes through Jesus Christ. He's the one who died on the cross who can pay the penalty of any person's sins. And if you want your sins forgiven, turn to him, confess your sins, receive him and entrust yourself to him. Peter is preaching this message and the most amazing thing happens before the praise team can get to the stage and even sing the first invitation, he's not even done his closing illustration. The Holy Spirit descends upon this house and they are baptized and filled and the house filled with Gentiles is converted. I mean, you think about this, Peter in Acts chapter two is preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem and they are filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Spirit, they, that first group of Jews filled with the Spirit, come into the church. In Acts chapter 8, Peter comes down from Jerusalem and, and meets with the Samaritans who had believed the gospel that Philip had preached. He lays hands upon them, and then they are baptized and filled with the Spirit, and the Samaritans now come into the church. And here in chapter 10, he does the same thing, except this time it is Gentiles. It kind of gives us a different perspective, maybe, on Matthew 19, when, when Jesus says to Peter, you're going to have the keys to the kingdom. You, you will bring people in <laughs> to the kingdom of God, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile. Now, you'd think the church would be happy in all this, right? But that brings us to Act 4, the unexpected criticism. Verse 1, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now you talk about a downer. Isn't that always the case? Whenever you're on a spiritual 
high or you've experienced something spiritually wonderful, there's always somebody there to pour cold water over it, isn't there? This seems to always be the case. God does this miraculous work in the life of these Gentiles, and Peter gets criticized for it. He's, he's being accused of being unclean, and he's su- suspected of wrongdoing. Why is it that these guys are so inflexible and unchangeable and antagonistic to the church having a, a bigger tent? <laughs> What's the issue here? I, I think it's the issue that, it's, it's, it's the same issue that occurs over and over and over again throughout history and throughout the centuries. We become so convinced that, and by the way, these are believers. These are Jewish believers. But they are so convinced that a passage means X and the application is Y. Or that the doctrine means X and the application, the way you work that out is Y and it can't be Z. Right? And they're so convinced of this that as a result, they become critical because of what is happening. It doesn't fit within that box. The Holy Spirit isn't working the way their doctrine says the Holy Spirit is supposed to work. It doesn't meet their criteria of what is theologically correct and acceptable. And if you think I'm misreading it, go back to the vision. Peter has to be shown this vision three times. And remember what he says. When God says to him, take and eat, he says to God, Absolutely not. The same thing he said to Jesus when Jesus said, I must go. Absolutely not. That is not going to happen to you. That's not what's supposed to happen to the Messiah. You see, our theology teaches boom, and therefore it can't be Z. Convinced. And he was so convinced, and they were so convinced that they had it right They couldn't fathom that it could be otherwise. Don't think, church, that that doesn't happen today. That that doesn't happen to us. That that doesn't happen in our church and our circles. It does. And when it does, that's what leads to elitism, spiritual pride, you know, Criticism of other Christians, other people, scorn, derision. This is how it happens. Well, in the face of this criticism, Peter tells his story. And now Christopher Nolan's movie makes sense. You have this unexpected revelation. He goes through and he tells it from his perspective. And when they heard these things, they fell silent. As they hear Peter's story, even the critics grow silent. And in this silence, church, there's a decision point. Every person who hears the story has now got to make a decision. They got to grapple with this. Sadly, it appears that some people who hear this story, they double down and they end up becoming more divisive. As Acts unrolls, they become more of a pain They actually get to Peter at one point and you you find that Paul, they become a problem to Paul and and Paul actually ends up having to rebuke Peter for backsliding and, and being influenced by these individuals. 
they just cannot fathom that the Holy Spirit would work in a way that is contrary to their understanding of God's word. They can't fathom it. They can't fathom that their application of God's word and the law of Moses is not the acceptable way. Just can't fathom it. So they become a problem. Thankfully, most of the Jerusalem church, they're humbled. They hear this story and as they ponder it, they begin to understand that when God works contrary to our deeply held beliefs and our opinions and our application of biblical truth, it's not God who got it wrong. <laughs> it's not God. And so they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They open their lives to this new work of the Holy Spirit, this new movement, and as a result, they are the ones who got to participate in the blessing. God uses this group of Jerusalem church, uh, Christians to become the springboard for the gospel spreading throughout the Mediterranean world, spreading to the known Gentile nations at that time. And all of these apostles who were there in this church in Jerusalem began to spread out to India and Egypt and Africa and to everywhere, the gospel now begins to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. You know, many people come to these two chapters and the focal point is on Cornelius as the first Gentile convert. And I understand that. And it is an important epic moment in Christianity and the early church. But I would suggest this morning that it's the conversion that takes place in the heart of Peter and the Jerusalem Christians that we should meditate on, that we should apply this morning by way of our takeaway truth. That the most significant transitions in our spiritual journey involve God unexpectedly changing our heart attitude towards those that we dismiss or despise. If you think about it, we enter into the kingdom of God because of a transition from death to life where God changes our heart attitude towards somebody who we previously dismissed and scorned. He changes our heart attitude towards Jesus so that instead of dismissing him or rejecting him or laughing and scorning him, we now love him and receive him. And as we grow in the gospel, we come to realize that the gospel is the great equalizer. We all stand before God as sinners without hope apart from his sovereign mercy. And as we understand and believe this and grow in this, the gospel does something to us. It begins to enlarge our hearts towards other people, people who are already inside the family of God and people who are outside the family of God. This is the power of the gospel. And it begins to teach us what Peter was taught on that day, on that roof in the city of Joppa. The gospel teaches us that no one is common or unclean, no one. And that the caste systems that are in our culture, the categories that encourage bigotry and discrimination and racism and prejudice and elitism and derision, 
and superiority and abuse, all of these systems that can inhabit our society and our thinking or even our functional worldview. We may never admit that they're there, but they are there because they affect how we live our lives and how we interact with other individuals. All of those things find no merit in the word of God. Because the scriptures teach us that within the family of God, for example, everyone who is in Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile, male or female, bond, free, rich, poor, high, low. All of these categories are gone because we are on level ground before the cross of Jesus Christ. As the apostle James teaches us, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? So, dear Christian, this morning, does your heart need to be enlarged by the gospel? Are there attitudes there that need to be rooted out and identified? There's some questions that will help you determine that. Who do you avoid? Who have you stopped praying for thinking that it's it's no use. God's not going to do anything there. Who do you roll your eyes at? This is one that convicted me. By the way, these are all questions that I just meditated on, and <laughs> this is the one that got me. Who irritates the fool out of me? Oh, boy. What Christian church or group do you express skepticism towards? Which Christian group do you mock? laugh at? <laughs> Who are you suspicious of? Who do you feel superior to? Well, when I started asking myself those questions, I realized lurking deep in my heart, there was still a lot of kosher Peter, kosher Jerry. I need the gospel to continue enlarging my heart. Heavenly Father, would you continue to do that work in my heart and the hearts of these people here who I love? Lord, it's so easy for us to become entrenched, to put your spirit in a box, become callous towards others, skeptical, scornful, derisive, divisive, skeptical, cynical, unloving, judgmental, condemnatory. God, help us to realize that we are all without hope apart from your sovereign mercy. God, would you do that work that only you could do in Peter's life, that only you could do in the life of those Jerusalem Christians, that only you can do in our lives. That, that work of grace that helps us to look on each other and our church here and other churches in our community, helps us to look at the people in our community with eyes filled with compassion, and empathy sees them as souls, as men and women who are created in your image, who need to experience the forgiving grace that was purchased by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do that work of grace in our hearts, I would ask, starting with me. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.